Good morning, good morning. Grace and peace to you. Um, let's see, we're continuing uh, our series on sharing the gospel this week. And we've made our way through uh, various different stages, but this week we're continuing on about hospitality. We're going to talk about hospitality once again. And the reason why is because in our age of isolation and fragmentation, hospitality, extending welcome and building relationships, not just with one another, but with outsiders, that this is going to be the decisive factor when it comes to the spread of the gospel. So last week, we talked about the obstacles that stand in the way of hospitality. Things like busyness, right? We're just pace of life. We're just on a 24-7 schedule. So that makes it hard to welcome and entertain guests. Um, also, fear, right? Our society is very divided, and we're very isolated. And because of that, we tend to um, fear those who are our neighbors more than is rights. And we talked about things like that. So the obstacles that stand in the way of the gospel. This week, uh, we want to take a look at hospitality more directly and just give you some uh, practical principles that you can put into use in your own practice of hospitality. Now, it's something, of course, hospitality that just has to be learned in the doing, right? It can't be learned sitting down. You just have to get out and do it. But these are helpful things that will at least guide you in that practice. Before that, however, I want to underline the importance of hospitality once again. Again, I don't think the problem is, well, I don't know what to do or I don't know how to open my home. I think that's pretty straightforward. It's just the issue of will we do it? It's the issue of... Are we encouraged enough to do it? Do we understand it's important enough to rearrange our lives to go after it? So I spoke last week about the importance of hospitality as it's biblically understood. And that hospitality is, in fact, a practice that is very near to the heart of the gospel. That when God saves, what it looks like is welcome. He opens the doors and invites people in. And that hospitality is something that we can't set aside without significantly distorting the nature of the faith. So that's what we spoke about last week. This week, I want to talk about the importance of hospitality as it pertains to our present cultural moment, just society at large. And I firmly believe that hospitality is the need of the hour. Now, why is hospitality so important in our day? Simply because the shape and direction of modern life makes human community and friendship incredibly difficult. I don't need to, I will share a little bit of stats, but I don't need to do that, right? You can survey your own life. You can survey the life of those you know, and you can see this to be a self-evident truth. And the way I see it is that we have two options, the kingdom or the machine. We have two options, the kingdom or the machine. Now, the kingdom, of course, is God's kingdom, and it can be summed up in the image of a table. Now, when you think of the table, what comes to mind? What sort of associations does that bring up? Now, on the opposite side of the kingdom is the machine. 
It's modern life. And it can be summed up in not the table, but the metaverse. And if you don't know what that is, bless you. You're better off for it. Now, sooner or later, sooner or later, this choice, kingdom or machine, table or metaverse, is one that we're going to have to make. We can swim upstream and resist the technological forces that destroy human community, or we can go along with it and live in the brave new world. So what is the machine? As I said, it's our modern technological life, and it stands for the destruction of human community and friendship. And you see, the goal of the machine is to remove us from everything natural, to remove us from the world as God created it to be. That is, it takes everything online and makes it digital, even life itself. The overlords at Silicon Valley, Tim Cook and Mark Zuckerberg and the rest, are currently dumping hundreds of billions of dollars into this very project. The creation of virtual reality headsets that you can wear all day, and what they do is overlay their digital world atop the real one. We already live on and through our phones, and they want to take it a step further and integrate their products into our very vision of reality. So again, this might seem like a strange thing to be on about in a message about hospitality. Now, what do the two have to do together? Now, I'm not suggesting that we follow the Amish, but merely that we recognize the destruction that our modern technological world has brought to human community. It's not brought us to, do you remember when they made the promise of the digital town square, that social media of all forms is going to bring us together and unite us? That's what they promised, but rather what's happened is it's pushed us further and further apart, and it will continue to do so. In May, our Surgeon General, Vivek uh, Murphy, he reports that he, he, let, he rather released a report on our epidemic of loneliness and isolation. Our epidemic of loneliness and isolation. And he lays the blame for all this at the foot of modern life. In the last few decades, he says, we've lived through a dramatic pace of change. We move more. We change jobs more often. And he says, we are living with a technology that has profoundly changed how we interact with one another. And you can feel lonely even if you have a lot of people around you because loneliness is about the quality of your connection. Connections, I should say. So the document goes on to report that nearly half of the nation, that's our neighbors, those around us, experience significant levels of loneliness. And it's even more pronounced in the younger population, people from ages 15 to 24, who have up to 70% less social interaction with their friends than previous generations. 70% less. I think of sort of how isolated my generation is, and then think of the younger generation and think of 70% less of social interaction. And the effect that this loneliness has upon the human body is equivalent, the report says, to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. 
So this, what I just described, is what we're calling the machine. The modern technological world that eats away at human connections. It replaces life and relationships as they were meant to be with a digital synthetic counterfeit. The machine makes us machines, less and less human. So just stop for a moment and and take inventory. How has the machine impacted relationships in your life? Now, I would imagine, in most cases, not for the better. My generation was the first to go fully online. I remember my dad buying a computer and hooking up the internet for the first time. And then sitting there with my brothers and sisters, waiting hours to download a five-minute video. And then, um, after that, spending countless hours updating my MySpace profile, for like the two of you who know what that is. That was Facebook before Facebook. Now, as innocent as that seems now, the current fad is, I don't know if you heard of this, artificial intelligence girlfriends, AI girlfriends. So you can tell the machine exactly uh, what kind of girl you want. You can customize her body type. Uh, You can customize her personality. And on and on. And out the machine spits a custom girlfriend. It generates uh, an AI person, so to speak, who can message you. Right, So she can text you on your phone. Uh, She can send you pictures, and she can even talk to you. It generates a voice, and she can have a conversation. So listen, we're not living in the metaverse just yet, but we're well on our way. We're fast moving in that direction. More and more, real human connection is disappearing. More and more, people are driven into isolation, into loneliness, and then despair. Now, as the church, we can't go along with this for obvious reasons. The biblical vision runs in the exact opposite direction. It's not the machine, but the kingdom. And the kingdom is not characterized by the online metaverse, but the table. The table. So at the end of human history, Revelation 19 verse 9, the kingdom is depicted as a celebration. It's called the wedding supper of the Lamb. The wedding supper of the Lamb. When was the last time uh, you attended a wedding? Now, I always love weddings uh, because they seem, they seem to be at the very heart of things. I was just telling that someone the other day. It's like, I want to go back to a wedding. Because the joy and happiness of a wedding The festivity and gladness of a reception are but small glimpses of the coming kingdom. The future to which we are headed is portrayed as a banquet. It's portrayed as a table that God himself sets for his people. Read Isaiah 25, a scripture we've been looking at quite a bit in the last couple months. God sets a lavish banquet, and he invites his people to it. So if the machine stands for the destruction of human community, the kingdom stands for its opposite. The kingdom stands for its opposite. Paul put it this way. This is Romans chapter 14, verse 17. The kingdom of God 
is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, what Paul is saying is that food and drink are not the end, but a means to an end. And that end is right and harmonious relationships. That's what the table stands for. It's the place of fellowship. The table is the place of unity. And the table is the place of justice. And that's where we're headed. That's how things are pictured at the last day. A wedding feast with a beautiful spread set before us by God himself. So it's, that's what we're headed to, and that's what we're called to now. Not the isolation of the machine, but the belonging of the kingdom and of the table. So our calling is to carve out space in our society and in our lives for what is real, for what is good, and for what is pleasing to God. To demonstrate to our neighbors who are caught up in the system of this world that there is another way, and it looks like the kingdom. It looks like welcome. It looks like face-to-face relationship across the table. In a word, what it looks like is hospitality. That's what we're called to. Now, the Pharisees, you'll remember, uh, were offended at Jesus' eating habits. They expected Jesus and his disciples to be more like them. That is, you know, buttoned up and proper, respectable religious leaders. And so they came to Jesus and they just flat out told him, our disciples often fast and offer prayers, right? So these are the guys you can see who are twisting their faces on the street because they're fasting and the ones who uh, spend long time in prayers. They said, we want you to be like us, or at least that's how our disciples are. And then they said to Jesus, but your disciples eat and drink. So in other words, they want an explanation. You know, why are you guys breaking the norm? This is how things are supposed to be done. Now, instead of an explanation, they receive a question. And that's how Jesus always does things. Luke chapter 5, verses 34 to 35. You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. So, Jesus is essentially saying to the Pharisees, you don't know the time or the occasion. You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? So, Jesus is the bridegroom. His disciples are the groomsmen. And his banquet meals with sinners and tax collectors and everyone in between are the wedding reception. Now imagine for a moment you saw someone, head bowed, abstaining from food, tucked away in a corner at a wedding. You'd wonder what's going on. And you might approach them and say, are you okay, brother? How come you're not joining the party? You know, now's not the time for this. Now's the time to celebrate. It's time to be happy and festive because there's a wedding. Something amazing has just happened. Now, when Jesus is present, that's what he's telling to the Pharisees. When Jesus is present, that means the kingdom is present. And that means it's not time to fast. Jesus says that time will come. It's not time to fast, but it's time to feast. 
It's time to celebrate. And that's what Jesus' meals were all about. That end time kingdom that will come on the last day, Jesus is bringing it here ahead of time. The bridegroom is present. And when the bridegroom's present, we feast. One author put it this way. Jesus did not come preaching an ideology, promoting ideas, or teaching moral maxims. He came proclaiming the feast of the kingdom, and he came feasting in the kingdom. Jesus did not go around merely talking about eating and drinking. He went around eating and drinking a lot. So, Jesus' habit of eating and drinking, of welcoming sinners and tax collectors and keeping company with them is not sort of haphazard or incidental to his ministry. He's living out the kingdom. He is creating righteousness and peace and joy. So what would change in our, what would change in our lives rather? What would change in our lives if our perception of our tables changed? What if we saw our meals as a family or even with other friends or our meals together as a church? Um, if we saw them not as just another meal or even as time for ourselves, but what if we saw that very simple practice, that necessity of life as an expression of the kingdom? What if we saw it that way? As a time and place where heaven draws near to earth, and that's not sentimentality, that's just good theology. The table is where the kingdom is present. So what would it look like for your table not to be characterized by the isolation and estrangement of the machine, but the righteousness and peace and joy of the kingdom? What would that look like? That's what God is calling us to, that same meal fellowship as Jesus. So, when the machine dominates and drives the many into isolation and into fear, the few must learn to practice the hospitality of the kingdom. We need to learn again, or perhaps for the first time, the ways of the kingdom and how they make for righteousness and peace and joy. So if that previous section, the machine in the kingdom, was operating at a 30,000-foot level, this section returns to ground level. I want to talk about the basics of hospitality and how we can pursue it. And this is real novel. It can be summed up in one word, welcome. Now, when you consider Jesus' own meals, and I'd encourage you, this week, just read the Gospel of Luke. It's 24 chapters, but it's not that long. It'd take you a little over an hour. Read the Gospel of Luke, and when you see it, these meals that Jesus has, he has a lot of them, there's one undeniable element, and that is he created an environment of welcome. It's one of those things, perhaps the chief thing that made him so compelling to the masses. So Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 2, what we read this morning uh, stand is something of a summary for Jesus' hospitality. It says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So it's, it's helpful to contrast Jesus and the Pharisees 
and how the people perceive them. And really, that element of contrast helps us to know all we need to know about the hospitality of the kingdom. And I like what Luke does here is he makes it very clear that it was sinners who sought Jesus out. They were coming near to him to hear him. His presence was such that they wanted to be around him. They wanted to hear the gracious words which were coming from his mouth. Jesus was compelling and attractive and welcoming to these people. Now the same cannot be said for the Pharisees, as the scriptures make clear time and time again. Sinners actively fled from their presence given their attitude. If they grumble at Jesus, there's no shot they're going to welcome sinners themselves. They're offended that Jesus is doing it. They're certainly not doing it. So listen, what sinners found so compelling and what religious men found so offensive was the same thing, and that's grace. It offended the religious men, and it was compelling to sinners. Grace. If you want more evidence on that, just keep reading Luke 15 till you get to the story of the prodigal son and his older brother. It's perfect explanation of Jesus' ministry and the grace that can lead one one way and another the exact opposite. So to put things simply, grace is undeserved favor. Grace is undeserved favor. It's God's kindness and generosity to us, even though we don't deserve it. Our heart and our actions deserve, just like those sinners, one thing, and that's rejection. But God gives us another, not because we're pleasing to him. We manifestly are not pleasing to him in and of ourselves. Rather, he welcomes us, he receives us because he is kind, because he is gracious. God does not say, clean up and then come near me. Get your life right, fix things, and then come near me. Rather, he says the opposite. Come near me, and I'll clean you up. He welcomes tax collectors and sinners. He welcomes us who have no right to receive that welcome. And it's that gracious welcome that characterized Jesus' meals. He received those who had no right to draw near to him. Not just tax collectors and sinners, but those who were ritually and ceremonially impure. The lepers, Jesus would reach out and touch them. Someone who probably hadn't been touched in so long. The woman with the flow of blood. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, we're called to extend that same reception. That same grace. If the machine is characterized by isolation and fear and suspicion, then the kingdom is characterized by indiscriminate welcome and generosity. It's a table that's open to all. Now, it's pretty clear what that looked like for Jesus and his ministry, but what about us? What does that look like for us? Now, I want to first say that gracious welcome is not about entertainment. Hospitality is not about entertainment. And it's easy when I mention that word hospitality to think that, okay, this means I have to put on a restaurant-type experience, a sort of performance for 
our guests. The table has to be set just so, the meal cooked to perfection, and the house, you know, uh, spick and span free of cobwebs and dust and the like. Well, that's not biblical hospitality. We're not called to welcome people into a perfectly manicured experience, but into our lives as they are. People don't need another packaged product. We have a whole lot of those. What people need is our authenticity. It's much better to be known, to be welcomed, to be seen as another person than to be entertained, than to be distracted for a couple hours in the evening. Now, I hope that's a relief because hospitality, I know, sounds burdensome for the most part, particularly for women. Generally, it's women who are responsible for the home. It's women who are responsible for the meal. And it's women who feel most this pressure of hospitality. You're inviting, inviting visitors into your home, and this is a reflection of you and your identity and all these other things that come up. But remember, hospitality is not entertainment. That's the business of snobs, entertainment, not Christians. Women already have enough to deal with. Now you've got AI girlfriends. Um, <laughs> hospitality doesn't need to be another one of those things. Hospitality doesn't need to be another one of them. And of course, there's something to be said for the environment that you set, for the food that you place before people and our homes, all that other stuff. But listen, that's not the things that counts at the end of the day, right? That what counts goes to relationship. And in fact, the experiences of hospitality that I've most cherished are those that are just unfussy. You know, serve me leftovers. Let's just be together. I'm not worried. You know, it's not about the, the performance. And what does Paul tell to the Romans when they're getting fussy about food and drink? We've just read this. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. He says it's not about the food. It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So if you got a great spread without those things, it's empty. It's not part of the kingdom. That's not what we're after. But if you have those things, righteousness, peace, and joy, and you're serving ramen noodles, then it's a full meal. That's what we're after. So that brings us to the thing that really counts, which is this relational welcome. And it's about grace. So what does grace require from us as hosts? Now, I'm envisioning a home setting here. Uh, but these principles are not restricted to the home. Okay, Hospitality can be practiced anywhere. If there's other people, there's opportunity. So you can use this wherever you find yourself. Now I'd say the first thing that grace requires of us is respect. That is, we should respect our neighbor's lives and choices, though for the most part, they will be different than ours. Now I mentioned um, that woman, Rosaria Butterfield, last week. And in her book, the secret, Con uh, the secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, she has this to say about the people who welcomed her, a radical lesbian feminist, into their home. She says, even though obviously these Christians and I were very different, they seemed to know that I, just, I wasn't just a blank slate, that I had values and opinions too, but they talked with me in a way that didn't make me feel erased. She goes on to say, they didn't identify with me, they identified with Jesus, and they listened to me. So listen, we're not going to agree with our neighbors on everything. 
And certainly some of those disagreements are going to be major ones. But that doesn't mean we can't respect those people, our neighbors, and their views and life choices. Now, over the past couple months, the Mormons um, have been coming over to my house. I just saw them getting rejected like every other house. So I was like, okay, let me humor them and entertain them. And we developed a a relationship. And I actually think I'm making some headway with them. Um, I started, I told them, give me a Book of Mormon, let me read it. I'll get familiar with what you guys believe. And then we have discussions about it. Turns out the Book of Mormon borrows a lot from the Bible, and that's a big mistake on their part. So I can use a lot of that to say, what about this or what about that? Specifically, Jesus' identity. So they started asking questions about the Trinity. Well, they wanted to know, well, what do you believe? Because I was like, well, I don't believe that. And anyway, it was, it's been really good. And now they're going to come over for dinner in a couple of weeks. I told them, we're not going to talk theology. We're just going to hang out, get to know you guys. But listen, none of that would have been possible if I had followed that typical script and come out guns blazing against their beliefs. If I opened John 1.1, look, right here, you guys are wrong. Instead, I respectfully asked them questions. I've gotten to know them. Elder Lund and Elder Swenson, if you guys would like to pray for them. Um, And I've gotten to know their doctrine. And so we can have a conversation that is respectful, that goes beyond the polemics, and that creates an environment where that discussion can be real and we're not simply trying to own one another in our arguments. They were really defensive at first because I told them I was a pastor. They thought that was going to happen. But anyway, developed a relationship with these guys, and, and, and here we are. They won't convert now, but down the road, some seeds have been planted. So it starts with respect, right? We can all do that. That doesn't mean agreement. That doesn't mean approval. It just means respect. And that leads us to the second thing that grace requires from us, and that's that we become people who are safe, to hear the burdens of our neighbors. Even, again, when we know what's going wrong, right? We know why that's happening. That we wouldn't treat them as evangelistic projects, but real people. Now, in all things, in this also, Jesus is our example. On Easter Sunday, do you remember the two disciples, Clopas and the unnamed other disciple? Uh, church tradition says it was his son, um, They're walking away from Jerusalem, back to their home, and they were talking about what had happened. Jesus' crucifixion and these strange reports that the women at the tomb were bringing that he was alive again. They didn't quite believe it. So they're walking home, and as they were walking, Jesus appeared beside them, but they didn't recognize it was him. And he began to speak with them, and he asked them, What is this that you're talking about? And uh, Luke tells us, one of them, Clopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? Right, how ironic. And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. And then they say this, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Jesus gave them room to tell their story. They were talking. He came alongside them and he asked, 
What's the matter? What's going on? He gave them room to share their pain and to voice their disappointments. You know, our hospitality at home or elsewhere doesn't begin with answers. It begins with questions. What are you guys talking about? What's going on in your life? Tell me. And it's only as we enter into our neighbor's lives, into their stories, their hopes, and their fears, that the gospel will actually connect and have meaning. They will come to see that we care. And thus the gospel will not come to them as an irrelevant religious message, but as a lifeline. It will come to them as the answer to their crushed hopes. How many people, like the two disciples, will say something like that? But we were hoping. I put all my eggs in this basket, and it came crashing down. But we were hoping. How many people could benefit and open a wide door to the gospel by just saying, hey, what's your story? Talk to me. So grace would have us, first and foremost, simply to get to know our neighbors, to draw near to them as our great and merciful high priest draws near to us. And uh, lastly, in this regard, the third thing, and this is more for us than it is for our neighbors, it's don't, don't be afraid to celebrate goodness in your neighbors when you see it. Now listen, we believe that humans are sinful. And we don't believe, like our culture does, that humans are basically good. Right? We believe in the fall. Now that doesn't mean that we believe humans are incapable of good across the board. Right? Instead, we believe that despite the fall, humans do remain in the image of God. And that means though our hearts are bent towards sin, and ultimately everything we do has the taint of sin with it, that doesn't mean that people don't still display some elements of goodness in their life. Though our neighbors are lost in sin, they may be better than us in quite a few areas. They might be better friends than us. They might be more generous than us. They might be other people of other religion who are more conscientious about observance than us. And what that means is that we can draw near to our neighbors, that we can love them, we can appreciate them, and that we can trust them. We have to be careful not to make the absolute distinctions that our culture so loves to make. Otherwise, our worldview might come crashing down and our faith with it. Because what happens when our neighbor, though not saved, cuts a figure closer to biblical righteousness than us? So my point is pretty simple here, and it's just this. There's common ground. There may be great fathers, great mothers, great husbands and wives, great friends, so on and so forth. There's common ground, and we don't need to be afraid to seek that common ground and to build upon it. So that's what grace requires of us as we welcome people, that we respect them, that we become safe to hear their burdens, and that when there's goodness, we don't need to run from it. Um, I want to wrap things up by simply talking now about who we welcome, about the type of people that we welcome. Now, Jesus, of course, was welcoming to all. Again, if you read the Gospel of Luke, you'll find him at the Pharisee's house, you'll find him with sinners. It doesn't really matter to him. But one thing we do see in Jesus' table fellowship is that he especially associates himself with the marginalized, those individuals who find themselves on the outside looking in. Those are the ones Jesus is most often around. His hospitality was never about schmoozing with friends, but about creating a place 
for those without a place. Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, Jesus says, When you give a dinner, he's speaking to the Pharisees who only invited people like themselves. He says, Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Just don't invite them. He says, But invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Now, my goal in hospitality is particularly our neighbors because they're around us. And that's the most open opportunity, I think, open door that we have for the gospel. But I would be wrong if we were talking about hospitality and I didn't emphasize this part. Biblical hospitality is not just about sort of having friends and a good time and even from outsiders. It's specifically about righteousness and justice, about reaching out to those who have no hospitality the least of these. That's really what it is about. Biblical hospitality concerns itself with the least of these. Now, I'm running long, so I'm going to wrap this up really quick. Um, My third point, if I had more time, I would say this. The table is also the place of divine revelation. The table is where Jesus reveals himself. Those two disciples, remember Clopas and the other, They didn't know Jesus was talking to them, even as he was schooling them in the Old Testament, telling them all the things about the Messiah that he would suffer, and they didn't understand. It was Jesus. And then as they came to their stop, Jesus acted as if he was going to go further. And they, Scripture says, compelled him to stay. So they engaged in an act of hospitality. They, some stranger, and they said, please stay with us, stay the night with us, and so It's getting late, so Jesus went and stayed with them. And Luke says they put out the table. And Jesus is a guest, but then he starts acting like a host. It says, um, I'll, I'll read it quickly. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Now, two other times, Luke uses the exact same terminology. He took bread He blessed it and broke it. The first is in Luke 9, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And the second is in the Last Supper, where Jesus shares a meal with his disciples before his death. And how interesting that these two disciples recognized Jesus as he did what he had always done, break bread and provide a place of fellowship. It was as he did that that they recognized him. And it says they ran back to the other apostles and said, we've seen him. And they said, yeah, he's appeared to Peter. And they said, he, he revealed himself to us in the breaking of bread. And so I, I think what Luke is saying there, he means to tell us something important about the nature of our meals. The table is the place where Jesus shows up. That's where in the faces of our brothers and sisters and even our neighbors and strangers, that's the place where Jesus is manifested to us. You guys know those great words in Matthew 25 where it's the last judgment and Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. And he separates them, you could say, on the basis of hospitality. And to the sheep, he says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And they said, When did we ever do any of these things? And he says, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. 
In the, medie- in the medieval world, monasteries were the centers of hospitality. So where there was no room in the town, uh, strangers and visitors would spill over into the monastery, and the monks would be the ones to host them. I got a lot of problems with monasteries, but this isn't one of them. And the monks had two questions that they constantly asked each other to judge their hospitality. Did we do a good job? And I'd like to offer these to you as well. The first one was, did we see Christ in our neighbor? In the least of these. Did we see Christ in our neighbor? And two, did our neighbor see Christ in us? That's a great measuring line for hospitality. Do I see Christ in the neighbor across from me? And does he see or he or she see Christ in me? And that calls us now to uh, the supper, where we're doing what Jesus always did. Sometimes the supper, I know it feels a little bit sort of mechanical sometimes, and it can feel a little bit rote. But the point in doing it every week is because that's what Jesus and his disciples did every week. That's what Jesus and sinners did every week. They broke bread. And in the table is the place where he reveals himself to us. So I'd invite you to come now to receive the elements, take them back to your places. I'll lead us in just a moment.